Welcome to Bitch Talk, booze interviews straight from the heart of San Francisco. I'm Erin. That's Ange. Hi. That's Char. Hello. You can find us at bitchtalkpodcast.com where you can sign up for our monthly e-news. For behind-the-scenes videos and two-minute clips of our interviews, head to our YouTube channel and subscribe. You can find us every other Thursday morning at 9.30 a.m. at bff.fm. And if you like what you hear, rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For the love of God, do it. It really helps. Really excited to welcome Margaret Cho to the screen. And um, hopefully everyone enjoyed Koreatown Ghost Story. So let's let's welcome Margaret. Hi, Margaret. Hi. Hi. Oh, there you are. Yes. <laughs> yes. Thanks. Hello. Yes. Hello. So um, this is really, uh, I didn't say this backstage because I didn't want to, you know, blow blow all the secrets, but this is really uh, such a, a huge honor for, for me to be a part of this conversation and for Bitch Talk to be a part of the conversation. So thank you so much thank for having you. us. Yeah. Thank um, you. Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to ask, you know, we have 20 minutes to talk about your very long and illustrious career, but you've been in comedy for 35 years and you started at the tender age of 14 in San Francisco. And um, my first question is, how did San Francisco influence your comedy when you started? Well, I um, started very young and San Francisco at the time stand-up comedy was such a event that was such a night nightclub thing. You know, it was just as big as music, going to see live music or even um, the theater, any kind of like nightclub event. But San Francisco was very well known for having a very, very um, exciting comedy scene. Um, there was so much of it happening and I really wanted to be a part of it. And um I grew up in a gay bookstore on Polk Street. It was at Polk in California called Paperback Traffic. And a lot of the people uh, that worked for my father were um, all working when following Harvey Milk and his campaign. And um, it was a very exciting time for San Francisco, for politics, for gayness. Um, the, the, so the, I think the, where the sort of where I drew sort of inspiration from a lot of my comedy was seeing like drag, seeing um, all of the sort of very camp performances, how drag has really changed now to be quite a glamorous profession where back then it was more geared towards comedy, a lot of camp, a lot of parody. And it was really um, almost a very kind of a, a vaudeville burlesque tradition. Mm. So that's kind of where I came from, but I really, loved stand-up comedy. I knew that I wanted to do it. And San Francisco was a great place to start. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, my my co-host couldn't be on the show today. She had a family emergency. So she was like, here are all my other questions. So I'm going to ask some of her questions too. Um, but she wrote, you know, not much has changed since you started comedy in terms of racism. And so are there jokes that you told at 14 still relevant today? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I think that it's really it's really terrible actually in the right. way that Asian Americans, you know, whenever America is in crisis, our Americanness comes into question. So this happened in 1849. It happened in the 1870s. It happened in the 1940s and it happened in the 1980s with the auto industry collapsing and giving way to Japanese automakers. 
And it's happening again now with COVID-19. And it's really the cyclical nature of the hatred against us and the denial of America to accept us as real Americans is frankly shocking because our presence here is one of the reasons why America was reunited after the Civil War, because the railroad wouldn't exist without Asian Americans and the railroad connected America after the Civil War. So it's really like our contributions are negated with this perpetual idea of foreignness. So the jokes that I told then really still apply. We still are sort of seen as the eternal foreigner. We're still seen as othered. And, um, you know, there's a lot of, There's a lot of changes that still need to be made. So the jokes stand. (laughs) Yeah, unfortunately. Um, Mm -hmm. I know that Joan Rivers was kind of the comic that you looked up to when you were a kid. Uh, I mean, starting out in the business as a kid. Can you talk about um, your relationship with her as you started growing as a comedian and also some of the um, the uh, talking about never aging out of comedy? tip that she gave you about that she was very very encouraging to me i met her in the 90s and she um had just started her jewelry line at qvc and she offered to send me a lot of free jewelry and i said i didn't wear jewelry and then so she turned her back to me and didn't speak to me again for two years and then when she came to terms with the (laughs) fact that i didn't wear jewelry she really embraced me as one of her own she was very supportive of women in comedy Um, in particular, women who she was a fan of. And she was a big fan of mine. And she was always there with advice and a kind word and also just really always paid for everything, which and and let you know that she was going to pay. So it was like a really great (laughs) friendship to have. And, you know, I miss her a lot. But she um, always said, you know, they're always going to want your point of view. They're always going to want you there because uh, we had a different role in entertainment than actresses or um, pretty much any actor really that, that women in comedy in particular grow so much more valuable with age and with time. And, and she was very right about that. So I'm really grateful for her. Yeah. um, I watched the doc hysterical, which I thought was, was perfect. And I want more. Um, But can you talk about, you know, they talk, they did talk about the Harvey Weinstein, um, Thing that happened with uh, I'm not remembering her name the comic that that kind of called him out in that club in New York which mm-hmm. was fantastic but can you yeah. talk about um how that moment and how the Me Too movement has maybe has it made comedy for women more accessible I think so well I think it's made it a lot easier for us to come forward and especially for all of us who were around during these different eras of comedy to realize that, oh, we could actually make this a safe place for ourselves. You know, that um, we've had to endure silence for so many generations because of um, the sort of code of conduct that we were supposed to uphold in comedy. And now we don't have to. So I think Me Too has been tremendously freeing and really important because Comedy, just like any other area of entertainment, is really male-dominated, but also very toxic. So mm-hmm. we have, uh, at least we have social media to, so we can find people who have our back in terms of, like, 
finding safety and finding security in our stories, telling our stories and telling our truth. So I think that it's going to make it better. It's just so new, though. Like this is right. just beginning. And I feel like history is going to reveal so much more. But as uh, comedians and, and women in comedy, we've, you know, seen our great, quote unquote, greatest icons of comedy be toppled by their own toxic behavior. You know, Bill Cosby and Woody mm -hmm. Allen, you don't get, get any bigger right. in comedy. And for them to have displayed the behavior that they have for generations um, and only now to really see a, a kind of retribution or to see something happen because of their some consequences, you know, th that that they even saw consequences is miraculous. But um, it's happening. Okay, well, I'm going to be kind of bitch talk right now. Um, and not so formal, but were y'all in the background when all of that stuff was happening and these huge comedians were their careers were toppling. I mean, they're going to jail, doing going to the court. Um, were y'all in the background kind of like, yeah, we knew it. <laughs> and kind of like, I mean, I, I was, or... I, <laughs> I mean, yeah, we, we had not known. I mean, I didn't know. Uh, I don't know. And I don't know. Um, Bill Cosby personally, I don't know Woody Allen personally, although he has said many times that I'm his very favorite comedian, but I think he has ulterior oh. motives. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's kind of weird. You don't have it a little plaque somewhere that says that in the, in your house? <laughs> it's just a weird thing. Like, I'm like, really? That's so weird. You know, yeah, <laughs> it's, like, question it's questionable. It's freaky. But then, um, you know, I, I think that, yeah, we all we all knew uh, to some extent about Louis CK, right. you know, that that was some, something of like sort of a showbiz kind of like that he's my generation. So we were kind of like, I think that's, I, I don't, you know, but you were never uh, able to sort of be, be open about it. And until mm -hmm. now, you know, until, until these women came forward and told their stories. So, you know, I, I hadn't had firsthand information about, those men in particular, but the culture in general was so incredibly um, toxic and scary as a young woman in particular in the 90s, especially like in, a, in and around all of comedy, you felt like there was a very predatory atmosphere. Mm. There was a lot of a lot of that and that you just had to really cope with it as a young woman. But now I'm so grateful, you know, to see that that's changing. And so, you know, th there's 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 been a big shift and I think there's been growth. But, yeah, we we had kept those secrets for so long and um, for it all to come out. It's really it's really powerful. Yeah. Thank you for for indulging me in that question. Um, yeah. How how were you able to thrive in this industry without giving into the system that made it hard for you to succeed in the first place? Well, in a sense, I never have anything to lose because I don't have anything at stake. I mean, I don't have uh, status as a uh, as an Asian American queer woman in comedy. Yet, um, in comedy, the the less you have at stake, the better chances you have because it's like we don't have to think about stature or reputation or anything because it's like we don't have anything to lose. And that's really kind of the best place to be. Um, I think as an artist and um, truly comedy is 
quite an outsider art form. And so for me, it's a place where I can really thrive. And, um, you know, your career has been very eclectic. You're actor, you're producer, you're musician, uh, clothing designer, activist. Can you talk more about that and, and what all of those things mean to you throughout your career? And maybe looking forward, is there anything you want to pursue, especially after the pandemic? I think that um, for the most part, I still just really identify as a stand-up comedian and, and an actor. And, um, you know, what I look forward to is basically just going back to doing stand-up comedy in um, the way that I did before, you know, which is I haven't done a, a live performance uh, really like, well, that's not drive-in or, or, or whatever, you know, these pandemic concessions. So this is like a an exciting thing to look forward to. Um, I also really loved making uh, this film mm -hmm. and I would love to do more with this film, of course, and also in the genre of horror because it's a long time love of mine. Um, I, when I watch horror films, I can really relax because I always uh, I have an overactive, worrying imagination of like all the terrible things that can happen to me. So when I watch a horror movie, I'm like, oh, thank God it's happening to somebody else. So I can relax <laughs> finally and not worry about it happening to me. I can watch it. But horror is really um, a wonderful escape for me. And I, I think there's so many great genres. And where I found true, true uh, visibility for myself when I never saw Asian Americans in TV or film, I could go to category three Hong Kong films um, and really see like they have so many like fantasy horror and sort of Chinese ghost story and um, even like the really kind of trashy uh, untold story kind of things I think are really amazing films. So that's really where I uh, drew a lot of inspiration for my performance in this film is from movies that were very, very important in my upbringing. And speaking of, I've been listening to your podcast and I, I want to talk a little bit about that too. Um, but I was hearing and I've read you're a germaphobe and the pandemic has happened and it's still happening. How have you been able to cope through this time? Has it been through art, through this film, through your podcast? Can you talk a little bit about that? I think it's really about taking that fear and putting it into action. So what we can do if you're afraid of germs is really like take action and with you know, being uh, able to sanitize your spaces, sanitize the places that you go and, and being aware of it. I mean, I think that's really just taking it into a place of I'm going to do these certain things, these steps to take precautions and, um, you know, wearing masks and all that. That's really helped. Actually, I feel like my own germaphobe nature has been somewhat tamped down because hmm. of everybody out there wearing masks everybody out there sanitizing, everybody out there being extra cautious about what they're touching, what they're doing. And uh, so it's actually helped me because you sort of have this, this global reach of uh, action around this pandemic. So that's helpful. What really scares me is the racism that Asians and Asian Americans have endured because of that, you know, because the mask only hides this part of your face, you could, they could still see that you're Asian. So then I wore a visor, but then they'll really know I'm Asian. So you, you, the fact that I have a visor. It's a giveaway. It's a giveaway. It's a dead giveaway. <laughs> and being an older Asian American woman, you're really the prime target for all of this violence. And so I'm like really, I, I'm really scared. Like I really am terrified of the way that people are using this 
disease as an excuse to act out on their racism, their pre-determination, uh, this idea of who Asians are and what we represent. Uh, it's a very scary thing. So that to me is awful. And also what's odd about racism against Asian Americans is that, you know, the shame element around racism has been lifted when it comes to racism against us. Like there's a great deal of shame when people are racist against any other race. But for some reason with Asians, there's no shame there. And people aren't ashamed of their racism about Asian Americans. And that to me is very shocking. Mm -hmm. So we got to bring that shame game into it. Yeah. Um, the only other thing I wanted to touch on before we let in our filmmakers is, are there any uh, comedians you want to give a shout out to right now um, that you are loving? I love uh, Robin Tran. I think she's phenomenal. She is a really, really funny uh, Vietnamese American uh, trans woman. She's comedy. She's just the best. And so you can see her. She's got TikToks. She's got um, Instagram stuff. She's very active out there on social media. I think she's really the one to watch. Great. Thank you so much. So it looks like it is time to invite our writer, directors, and producers of Koreatown Ghost Story, Minsoon Park and Teddy Tenenbaum. Hello. And we just said it's great to be here, but then we realized we're just really here. We're always here. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they just beamed you in. Yeah. Um, you know, like I said earlier, uh, my co-host isn't here and we normally watch the films, you know, separate of always, uh, especially during the pandemic. And we were just texting each other like this was such a great film and such a great short. Um, can you two talk about uh, the way that this film came together? And as you were writing it, were you thinking of having Margaret in it? Um, yeah, definitely. Um, when for some reason, well, not for some reason, actually, because I've been such a fan of Margaret's um, stand-up for so long, and too. particularly, <laughs> yeah, um, me too. You know, awesome. big fan of the way she portrays her mother. And even though Mrs. Moon is nothing like Margaret's mother, um, it stuck with me. And so while we were writing it, I just wrote it for Margaret in mind. Um, and I know that was, and I, this is before I even knew she was a fan of horror or anything like that, but it was just something stuck in my head. So when we were casting. You know, I said, you know, I know this is crazy, but I would like to, you know, talk to Margaret about this. So, you know, we did what we had to do to reach out to her people. And yeah, it just happened. And it's, yeah, it's it's strange, but true. <laughs> do you want to tell the genesis of the story? Oh, yeah. It's, it's kind of a weird <laughs> family tale, actually, because um, my cousin, you know, back in the 80s, a lot older than me, she passed away two weeks before her wedding day in this horrible accident. She was going down a a staircase in Seoul and the banister broke off and she fell like three stories to her death. Um, and that was two weeks before her wedding day. And my aunt, um, of course, understandably distraught, was convinced that her daughter was haunting her, you know? And so she consulted, you know, a Buddhist uh, about another Buddhist monk, or I don't know who it was, maybe it was a shaman, I'm not sure who it was, who told her that, you know, ghosts that are unmarried often are restless and hungry ghosts. So um, she found a matchmaker to matchmake her her daughter's spirit to another unmarried spirit, and her daughter was laid to rest. 
And that story, well, freaked me the fuck out. <laughs> but it stuck uh, yeah. with me um, for years. And I just kept thinking, well, what would happen if, you know, you married a, a ghost? Like, could that happen? And To a living person. To a living person. And what would that entail? And especially if there's like, you know, family inheritance. And, you know, for Koreans, your family line is so important, you know, and perpetuating that. And so anyways, that was the genesis of that. Yeah. And Margaret, when you got the script, were you right away like, I'm going to be in this and I am going to be the executive producer? <laughs> yeah, I loved it. And I really wanted to be involved in it because I had never even considered the possibility of Asian American horror. And this is so much that, you know, and I was so excited to get into it. And um, the world, that's sort of the shamanic world of uh, Koreans is so amazing because Korea is so high tech, but there's something that's so ancient about our beliefs and, you know, Chisuk, which is kind of like this Thanksgiving celebration where you honor the spirits of the dead. And, you know, what we do in our family is we would just take big styrofoam like things and then like tape like fish to it or tape like jujubes to it so that we wouldn't have to pile it all with fruit so it would look like there was a lot because the ghosts aren't going to eat but they just want to know that you tried and oh that's so my dangerous. family has such it is but they have a very practical notion of like dealing with the spirit world you know and, and that that's really what i saw in this project and i also love when um a very sort of a an actor kind of like steps into things like um, George C. Scott does, does Exorcist 3 and he's really great in it. Or like uh, and any of like, like re Lee Remick in The Omen, you know, I love like when sort of like actors that you know in other capacities go into horror, it's mm -hmm. very exciting to me. Right. And so this was like a really thrilling thing to finally get to sort of live out my own sort of, I don't know, like fantasies about being in horror and I, and I love it. And I loved Lyrica Kano. She was superb. Can you guys talk about the casting and, and Margaret, if you want to chime in too about, about her and her acting, it was wonderful. It's hard because horror is so specific. You really, it's hard to seem really scared <laughs> and also to turn and, because horror is really, the, the entire genre is built on transformation and you have to see the transformation of the character from beginning to end. And it's like the, they're afraid, but something rises up within to show the strength and help them survive it. And, you know, in the short, it's, it's hard to do, but she really does such a great job of it. But she's also very much like this sort of like very perfect like classic horror screamer. She's really great. <laughs> yeah, we used her um, we, we, in the, the bathroom scene. She screams a number of times and they were so good that I just kept like taking that scream and putting it in other parts of the movie. And <laughs> so she had a lot of great screams. Um, we, we were able to catch up before everything started uh, this afternoon. And I, I did want to ask you guys to share the story about filming during a pandemic, because there's a lot, lot to tell and a lot to unpack. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, it was, I would not recommend that for anybody to do that again. Um, I mean, on the upside, Margaret's availability, you know, was a factor. And so we would never have worked with her if it, if it hadn't been for the pandemic. So I'm convinced of that. But 
on the downside, you know, just the house, one of the, the problems was the house that we were renting, the um, one of the occupants of the house, I think it was a caregiver to one of their um, children um, came down with COVID. Um, and this was like the week of four like, days, four before days before shooting. we were due to shoot. And, you know, we were in a panic trying to eat and there was a surge going on. So even getting tested in a timely fashion was a scramble. So we were on the phone trying to help you know, the homeowner get a COVID test for their whole entire family, you know, and we were doing that with all the pre-production stuff. And yeah, it was, it was a lot. And thankfully the whole family tested negative. Um, but until the, maybe the day of shooting, we didn't know if it was going to go forward at all. Yeah. And I know we mentioned this backstage, but um, we shot the weekend after Thanksgiving. So that was when the surge was starting to happen. The surge that would basically shut Los Angeles and filming down again. We knew this was happening any moment and also the first time in march when this had happened everything shut down instantly including filming so we assumed that was going to happen again um so we knew and you know we had already done put a lot of uh deposits down and money into the movie and we had our entire crew who had not worked much in nine ten months you know sitting around waiting to see what would happen and in the end we mainly decided to go on with it because had the crew not been able to work that weekend and with what was coming, they wouldn't have found other work uh, for probably months again. And we just couldn't take that away from them. So we just hired nurse a nurse for the set. We had testing every day. Um, we felt it was the safest place in Los Angeles for those. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no one had COVID on our set. <laughs> right. Uh, so, uh, but it was it was in addition to all the normal stress of making a film, uh, especially a short film on a budget um, that was you know times ten. Sure. And Margaret, can you talk about your character in the film? I please just talk about her. I love her. <laughs> well, so um, I play a mother who uh, has a sort of a tenuous relationship with death and her son and um, is kind of like a um, I think she actually is a mudang, which is a sh Korean shamanic practitioner. And uh, mudangs are sort of, they're like um, fortune tellers combined with, uh, they should do shamanic healing, but they also will do sort of like cast spells depending on where they are in the sort of spectrum of like what their powers are, where their like ancestry is like dictates their powers and stuff. So I feel like she's really kind of bought into this because of her tragedies that have happened. And so she's uh, finding this perfect person, which is um, Hannah's character, uh, Lyrica's character, Hannah. And, um, you know, tries to use her and sort of it comes apart in a way that she doesn't expect. But um, it's a very familiar character to me. She's a real Ajima, which is like the older Korean lady that everybody's scared of, which is like I'm coming into my full Ajima powers like in my 50s now. So it's just the perfect time to take this on. Um, Ajima, Ajima fear is real. Like you should be scared. Everybody should be scared because it's like the Koreans are such a patriarchal culture that you have to have a really powerful woman to survive it. And these are the Ajimas. Wow. Um, we're already jumping into the Q&A session, so I'm going to start asking you some questions from our audience. So this one's for everyone here. Um, Jerry asks, which horror directors give inspiration to your work? 
recommendations, question mark, who are key American filmmakers, I'm sorry, who are key Asian American filmmakers in this genre? I think Justin Lin, who did um, Better, Better Off Tomorrow, Mm, which is a very important Asian American. It's it's a horror, but it's it's not gory. It's a thriller, actually. Um, but I get a lot of I, I get a lot of inspiration from that film because it's just like this unease of not belonging, and even less so when you decide to add like not behaving in there. So it's a very interesting place to be. I also love the Saw films, mm. um, which I think uh, there's Wong. something very, yeah, there's something very Asian American about the Saw films that are like, <laughs> I, I definitely feel it and I, I see it there. So, um, but yeah, my, my favorite horror directors, I mean, of course, Wes Craven, of course, um, George Romero, of course, um, all of, all of, I, I mean, Sui Hark, if you go to China, like all of the big historical epic sort of ghost stories, that's Sui Hark, who's a Hong Kong director. And um, action is, you know, it's it's definitely, to me, like very ex exciting. Um, and John Wu, of course, mm -hmm. incredible. Um, but yeah, the entire like category three Hong Kong films, which are basically like the English translation, I, the British translation would be video nasties. But, you know, the films that they don't have at Blockbuster, you probably have to get them. I don't know where you get them. Maybe now that you could see them probably um, on uh, Tubi, Tubi.com, right. which is my yes. favorite streaming yes. service for like <laughs> odd horror movies, especially from Indonesia. And, um, you know, they're different and special. So, but yeah, there's a lot of great content out there. Yeah. And Minson and Teddy, any want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, there aren't a lot of Asian American horror, Asian American horror right, filmmakers right now. James Wan is obviously mm -hmm. like the, you know, the master. Um, but also, uh, and we we really did want to have a very particularly Asian American tone to this film because we've all seen Asian horror films, um, and they're very different tone. But there's so there's clearly the kind of American and you know kind of the wry tone that we wanted to have with this that is we think part of the. Asian, the American, Asian American immigrant experience, um, but also Korean American filmmakers um, kind of start from a place of, of this wryness. Um, and Chan Park is probably um, another inspiration for this film and the tone, particularly The Handmaiden, um, which uh, if you haven't seen it, we recommend it, but be be ready, man, because it's quite, <laughs> <laughs> your eyes will pop. It's it's insane. It's an, it, story-wise too, it's insane. So. Um, but um, I, I think, you know, we're hoping that the point here is that there are open, that doors will open for more Asian American filmmakers, especially genre, because um, right now, the thank goodness, the Asian American filmmakers are starting to have um, the ones who are starting to have more of a foothold are actually in drama, serious drama. Um, right. You know, obviously with Nomadland this year and Minari. Right. And, um, but we're hoping that that those doors open just as widely um, in the genre films, because that's really where a lot of people can can work regularly um, and work in genres that uh, in films that have mass appeal, which these smaller dramas are, you know, they're obviously award winners, mm -hmm. but they don't yet get the masses in to see them. And also, <clears throat> Bong Joon, 
Oh, with the parasite. I mean, it's not a horror film, but, but it is. It is. You know? <laughs> yeah. It is. It is. Yeah. yeah. And it's not that's that so way, great. But it creeps yeah. up on you. Like halfway, it just completely turns into yeah. this like crazy, like gothic, you know, horror movie, which I love. And but it's so character driven. <clears throat> and so this, to to me, that was. I know he's Korean, not you know Asian American, but um, specifically Korean. But it's still, he was just so influential in this like, whole like the way he gets into character, you know, and the horror that comes out from, extracts from those character studies, you know. And we'd also look at, I mean, this is, I want to belabor this question, but um, Margaret and I were talking um, uh, maybe a month or two ago um, about uh, Korean television as well. And uh, Sweet Home, which is a show on Netflix right now, it's a Korean television show, has this amazing tone of mixing horror and humor uh, and, uh, and also, uh, empathy um you're crying by the third episode um i highly recommend that as a great way it's it's it's, it's a new way of looking at genre, at, at, at horror films yeah i loved i loved that and um oh also the other uh, a director i would mention is karen kusama oh, who yeah. um yeah. is amazing yeah. and her film jennifer's body which is adapt an adaptation of tomi from junji ito's graphic novel series um it's really visceral and gory but it's kind of horror comedy too but it's quite it's, it's very feminist which i think is really yeah. incredible so that's a that's a great film and don't miss the invitation either speaking of that's an amazing movie yeah y'all yeah. need to like come up with the list and tweet it out <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah that's a good idea yeah um I have another question here for all of you. Amy asks, during a pandemic, horror films have gotten me through some stressful times. Why do you think horror has that kind of power? Well, because it's like, it really takes your, it's it's like, oh, you do the worrying for me. Like you do the horrible imagining for me so that I don't have to do it myself. Like when I watch it, I'm like, oh, thank God. And also you see like there there's so many different kinds of horror. Like I do love like a British, like a um a Pinewood Studios, like a horrible, like with Betty Davis or like um with you know, like um something like the haunting, something that was like a Shirley Jackson story is a it's a great one. Um uh Seance on a Wet Afternoon, which is a terrifying one with uh Richard Attenborough. It's quite disturbing but it's also like in the, sort of rooted in the real world so you see the anxieties and fears of generations past you can really examine society through horror and through the way that we were afraid and so i think it's it's very interesting like 80s horror is really all about sort of the inverse of teen culture where you had sort of the, the breakfast club and all of these sort of aspirational like teen movies but then you had like the friday the 13th coming over and over these like very grindhouse, like scary things happening to teenagers as opposed to, um, you know, rich teenagers, which I thought was really a great juxtaposition. And, you know, there's, I think Margaret hit the nail right on the head when she's talking about how we experience horror through someone else and it gives us release. Right. Um, I mean, we have a, also an anthropological background and the, mm -hmm. we believe that um, anthropologists believe that the first stories told around the campfire were horror stories, essentially. A lot of the early myths are horror stories, and they function in the same way that nightmares do, which is a way for us to experience the worst horror we can imagine and get those, those, those feelings out of our head, which you know, we live with on a daily basis, especially 
around, you know, when you were living in those days when you could be eaten by an animal at any, at any moment's notice. So it's a way for us to experience the worst thing that could happen so that we don't go through the, the day feeling that way. And also to speak to the question about the pandemic. And yeah, yeah I think that horror does reflect whatever society is going through at that time. Um, and even if it's not, if you are living in this heightened sense of dread and fear and your cortisol levels are already raised, and then to you know watch a horror film and to finally have that cathartic release of all that tension, I mean, it's like good sex, right? You just you <laughs> scream and you have like that moment and like shudder and then, <sighs> you know, afterwards, you just feel so, you know, released and relaxed. Um, and it just, it seems counterintuitive, you know, that getting the shit scared out of you would be so <laughs> relaxing and so calming. But I don't know, there's a reason why true crime documentaries have yeah. like a female audience primarily. Because I think women understand the real life horror and fear that we're usually feeling, you know, preyed upon, right? And so we know what it feels like. And so we really identify um, with watching these true crime things or horror. I mean, it's it's really weird, but there's something to that for sure. Oh, man, I could talk about Dateline. Um, <laughs> watch a lot of Dateline in here. Um, I, we're wrapping up here. Oh, hi. Lucia. Um, <laughs> Bar, bar fight. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, just as we wrap up really quickly, I heard that there's going to be a feature of this film. Can you talk about that? Oh, we're working on it. Um, okay. we, we can't say too much. Um, maybe soon we'll be able to say more. Um, but we are definitely working on turning this into a feature film. That's really yeah. exciting to hear. Yeah, Margaret, you, if you want to say anything about that too. No, I'm real. I really, I I love that. I think it's really, I think it really needs that, you know. And I'm, I'm excited to do it. Yeah. Well, thank you all so much. This has been Campfest. This has been Koreatown Ghost Story. We have Margaret Cho. We have Minson Park and Teddy Tenenbaum. Thank you so much for, uh, for speaking with us this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you. If you like what you hear, rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about us, you can head to bitchtalkpodcast.com. This podcast is created, hosted, and executive produced by Aaron Lim. My co-host is Angela Tabora, a.k.a. Captain Party. The show's edited by producer Shar. We're powered by GoTo Productions.